0: I want to welcome you back to Health is Your Wealth, a Walton County Conversation. My name is Dee, Dee Harris. I'm the executive director of Walton Wellness, a nonprofit here in Walton County. We're dedicated to the prevention of lifestyle-related chronic illness and pretty much anything health-related in Walton County. We're back again with my co-host, Bruce Young.
1: Or you could just call me the lackey that's sitting across from you. <laughs> no, I'm glad to be here, Dee. You're the
0: deep voice. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, this is this is great, and I'm glad to be a part of it. Thanks. And this is number five in our suicide series. And at this point, I want to, if you haven't, and we've said it on the previous podcast, but we want you to go back to episode one. And during the intro, there's just a lot of uh, a lot of good information. Um, what do you think, DeeDee? Dee? That would be the yeah, one to start with.
0: Definitely. It, it gives you perspective. I think that's the important thing, and that's one of the... The main things I want to get across to you in this series is for people to really get some perspective on our numbers as in regards to suicide here in this community because they are, I think, alarming.
1: Right. No. so certainly start with that one. And also, while you're doing that, you can get in touch with us at waltonwellness at Gmail or message us on Facebook with your comments, concerns, complaints, or any topics that you'd like to hear us discuss.
0: Yeah, we'd love to hear suggestions bring them our way for sure so as you mentioned this is our fifth and um final episode in this series of suicide and um i think this is going to be a really good informative interview it's with kia bams she is the interim clinical director at ridgeview right and i think one of the informative parts of this interview is going to be i think a lot of people don't really understand what ridgeview is um they took over the old hospital the hospital that was closer into town um, before clearview was be- built which is now piedmont um but i think there's a lot of mystery around what actually happens there and and who actually goes there
1: well that's true i'm curious to find out myself
0: so yeah they um so Kia offers up a lot of great information. The main thing that we talk about within this interview is kind of suicide, a kind of a picture of suicide, if you will. Something we kind of talk more about like how, what leads up, often leads up to suicide, um, what might be going on in somebody's head if they are considering suicide or if they actually do Um Decide to try, attempt, or either are successful and take in taking their life. So, Shakia offers a lot of really great insight that I think, especially for people that this has touched, very personal um, sure. has come into their life. I hope that this might offer um, some insight for them. And then also, hopefully, anyone out there listening that might have a um, friend relative loved one whoever it may be that you're concerned about hopefully i think that you might get some um direction on what to do and some signs to look for those kind of things
1: yeah well i think that's a perfect way to to wrap up the series and get a a clinical look at suicide so what do you say we get on with number five interview from ridgeview
0: okay well i want to welcome you to health is your wealth a walton county conversation um thank you so much for being here i'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do okay my name is kia Bamas.
2: i am the interim clinical director here at Ridgeview Institute Monroe um, I've been here since about October of 2017 um, started off as a program therapist and I'm still very active um, inpatient as well as outpatient here uh, working with populations ranging from adolescents of 12 years
0: old all the way up to our GERI unit um, who services 55 and older oh wow okay so I did not realize that so you do have a geriatric services here as well as well yes we do. Um, We see patients, I think our oldest has been about
2: 99 years old. Wow,
0: definitely. Yeah. (laughs) And can you tell us a little bit about your backgrounding as far as your school and your license? (laughs) Um, Maybe explain that a little bit. What what license you hold and everything? Sure.
2: Um, So I currently hold an associate professional counseling license on my way to an LPC next year. Um, I have worked with a range of folks. Um, My first experience was actually with the geriatric population in a nursing home mm-hmm. facility. Um, I then had the opportunity to work in an autism clinic with children wow. from two years old to eleven years old, um, who also had you know co-occurring co- disorders such as um, you know behavioral issues, right. oppositional defiance, um, and then ranging up to now, it's been a lot of work um, with co-occurring disorders, whether it's depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, substance abuse. Um, And in this arena, it's a lot more of the acute care. Um, So I do see a lot of suicide and things like that um, mixed with anxiety, mixed with psychosis. Right.
0: And um, so can you tell us a little bit, because a lot of people listening may not really understand what Ridgeview is. You know, uh, Ridgeview has been here in our community now for maybe two years. Mm -hmm. Am I right? About Mm -hmm. two years. Um, we knew that this was the old hospital originally. And mm-hmm. That's what everyone around here um, knew it as. And now it is Ridgeview. And there, I know that there is some real questions in the community about exactly what Ridgeview is and exactly what you do here. Can you just briefly explain that to us? Certainly. Um, so we are kind of like a sister
2: or a stepsister to the Ridgeview Smyrna campus, which is in Smyrna, Georgia. Um, we did open our facility about two years ago roughly, um, to service acute care. Um, needs in the community on an outpatient as well as an inpatient level. So on our outpatient level, we see patients um, anywhere from three to five days a week for a full-day program from eight to three or a half-day program from eight to 12. And these patients are able to come in from the community or we'll step them down from our inpatient once they've discharged to give them another line of support for therapies as well as um, psychiatric medication management, family sessions, um, and just sort of like a bridging to them getting back into their regular mode of life, whether it's an adolescent going back to school and needing some extra support or a working professional like you or myself that just needs an extra tier of support before we go see a therapist once a week or a psychiatrist every three months. Right.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. And so did you say there is an inpatient component here? Is that that's correct? There, that is.
2: And it's actually our largest component here. And so our units are broken down from adolescent to an adult intermediate, which is more of your high-functioning adults. They're able to process. Um, they know, you know what's going on. They're oriented to reality. Um, we see a lot of our substance abuse, detoxers over there, as well as um, depression, generalized anxiety. Our acute care unit is the unit where um, more of our schizophrenia or um, people that are expe- experiencing a loop, hallucinations, delusions. Um, You might have some substance abuse over there because as a product of that, they might be experiencing some psychosis. They may not be able to function. Um, We don't take in a lot of the more high profile violent behaviors, but if there is something like that, you'll see them housed on that unit. Um, And then of course there's our geriatric unit, which we try to look at um, 55 and older. But if we have a patient who's 55 and still active, like my mom, who's 66, I may not put her in the GERI unit um, because she's still very active, but we look at maybe some of the health issues that are going on. If they need a higher level of support with health issues, we'll place them there. Okay. Mm
0: -hmm. So it kind of does depend, as far as your geriatric geriatric unit goes, kind of depends on their lifestyle, where they are in life, not as much their age, Very much so. Very much so. We try to look at
2: every patient individualized. Right. Of course, you know, you sometimes do have that... um, that 18 year old student who's still in high school because they're 18 they will go on to the adult unit even if they're still in high school okay Um, so for our adolescent it is 12 to 17
0: okay Mm -hmm. well um kia you know that one of the reasons why we're here today to talk to you is because we have been working on a series about suicide Um, And in particular, talking about suicide in our community. Mm -hmm. However, you know, suicide looks about the same as far as outcomes go, wherever it happens. Um, So I just want to start off the conversation. If you might talk to us about how much do you deal with suicide here at Ridgeview? And when I say suicide, I know that that encompasses not necessarily a um i heard you use the term earlier completed suicide mm-hmm. meaning that you know someone has actually taken their life um but Do you look at suicide also when we're talking about people who are talking about ending their life, people who possibly have attempted but were not successful? Can you talk a little bit about that and what you see? um, Is that something you see a lot of here at Ridgeview? Sure. Um, Yes,
2: I have to say, and I mean, I'm not quoting numbers or anything, but from my experience, I have to say it's probably about 90 to 95% of the patients that I've seen or experienced here have had either the thought um, some type of intention about it or even an attempt, as you said. Um, so suicide definitely is not just about completing it. It's not even right. just about attempting it. A lot of times it just starts with that ideation or that oh. thought. Just the process of you um, you know, having a desire to, to die or having um, a desire to end your pain. Um, there's a scale out there that we use here in acute care setting um called the columbia suicide screening scale and that basically is designed to establish whether a patient has that desire has that intention or not okay. um and that's what we look at and um that's what we see a lot here and we see that in all age groups from adolescent all the way up to our jerry population um believe it or not
0: So with that scale, is that a series of questions that you ask the person or can you talk a little bit about what that scale is obviously it's Mm -hmm. something that professionals use Mm -hmm. um, but how do you ask questions to the person how do you kind of determine where they are yeah so what happens is in our intake assessment
2: um, which is the first step to identifying if a patient is appropriate for outpatient or inpatient here at Ridgeview um, there are components um, from the scale that we've pulled out to sort of make up some assessment questions um, to the patient themselves or patient-to-be, even you or I, you may not even realize that you're being asked some of these questions from the scale, Um, but as we're talking and assessing the patient, we're able to pull out some of those things and actually um, able to establish whether they have intention, they have attempted, they've thought about this in the past week, Um, so that's pretty much kind of how we're using that Columbia scale here.
0: Okay, that's interesting because I imagine that sometimes if you asked somebody Directly, Mm -hmm. They may deny or, as you said, you know, maybe they haven't even thought about it in those terms before, but yet Mm -hmm. they've had thoughts of just not wanting to be here anymore or something like that. Exactly. A lot of our
2: patients that we see come here um, involuntarily, which means that they probably come in from maybe an ER setting or something like that. They were obsessed in the ER for whatever reason they came. Um, and those questions might have been asked at the e- in the ER setting or why they're there, and you might have a patient that says, yes, I just I just want it all to be over. I just felt like driving my car off a bridge. Okay Now, whether they did or didn't, when we hear something like that, we're hearing that there might be a desire to not be here anymore there might be some um warning signs some level of stress that they're under that makes them say something like that and we don't play around with the intent you know we don't know we don't play around with that and that's how some people end up in our care is because the er will see and deem that they may be appropriate for something like this and thus they will come to us for assessment or send them over to us for assessment
0: and you said something um about, you know, we don't play around with someone talking that way, Mm -hmm. someone talking about ending their life. And that's interesting because, you know, in our society, I think there has been times in the past where, and also it depends on our relationship with the person, but people may say something like that and you say, oh, you know, they don't mean that, or Mm -hmm. they're just talking or something like that. Um, Just as a general rule, do you tell people, the families, loved ones, look, don't just dismiss anytime anybody says anything like that? I mean, do you kind of encourage anyone who encounters anyone in their life that starts saying something like that, Mm -hmm. um, that they should take it serious?
2: Um, yeah, and I think it's a lot of other factors and that go into play with this as well. Um, what we like to call it is protective factors. So protective factor, factors are those things that you and I and all of, you know, humanity pretty much have um, when it comes to or should have when it comes to wanting to live a life. Right. Um, And so we look at protective factors, be it is if you're a mother, you know, you might have protective factors is I want to be here for my children to see them graduate, to see them live. Right. Um, It could be I just bought a house and I want to live in it. Or, you know, I have goals to go to college if it's a kid, you know, or it's to
0: Um, be able to play with my grandson. So those are the protective factors factors are things that in your life that most people want to live to see Mm -hmm. kind of. Okay.
2: Yeah. And so if we have someone saying, Oh, I just want to make it in. I just want to, I just want it all to go away. You know, taking it serious, that comment that you made, should we make sure that everybody is taking that seriously when we hear someone saying that? It's that, no, everybody that says that, should they be sent straight to Ridgeview? Not necessarily, but if you have to look at the protective factors against what it is they may actually be going through when it comes to stressors. Okay. You know, did they just go through a divorce, or did they just lose their parent, or are they going through a job transition of unemployment? You know, what's going on with them stress-wise combined with that comment, combined with the protective factors to where then you could know, wow, I really need to key in. I really need to listen to them. They sound like they have a lot going on. Let me find out if if this is a cry for help or not.
0: Very good. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's definitely, it makes sense. And it's it's logical that, you know, sometimes people can just say that. And for whatever reason, they may say it, mm-hmm. but don't really mean it. Right, and, like and a figure you know of that. speech. Right, right, exactly. So I do understand that. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, and, and I know that, you know, this is going to vary mm-hmm. depending on the situation, but how does someone actually get to that point, not the person that we just discussed that may say something offhanded like that, Mm -hmm. but someone who truly is made up their mind that they want to end their life. Mm -hmm. How does someone get to that point? I mean, I think a lot of us from the outside who have never been there, mm-hmm. um, it's so foreign, and and we just don't understand it. Right.
2: And it is so foreign, but like I tell my patients upstairs and everywhere, you know, I'm just a situation from being in the bed where you are sleeping tonight. You know, it can really happen to any of us at any time. I think every person in, in their life, whether you've been a patient or not, needs to be able to identify triggers. We all have them, you know, and I'm not talking about just triggers for what makes us snap or what makes us angry, but those things that we, you know, that we hold very near and dear that might be very serious to us. What are those triggers? Because oftentimes that's the thing that kind of puts the person over the edge. Mm -hmm. It's also other things. Um, There are some genetic precursors If we've seen in people that have family members who have also completed suicide or attempted. We we seem to see a trend with that Um, another other one is addiction. Okay, A lot of people going through addiction issues, um, relapse and things like that. We've seen a trend of um, suicide ideations, attempts and things like that, um, as well as just transitions. With our kids, it could be anxiety with school parents getting a divorce so it's not necessarily that they have always had these ideations but something has happened in their life that they've lost control of Um, and we've heard it before in history of suicide that a lot of times um, suicide or the attempt or the, the the discussion of it is coming from a person trying to gain control and if oh. they feel like they have control of their life, that's the only thing they have control of. They want to do something about it. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's for the negative.
0: So that is something that um, is kind of new to me mm-hmm. in thinking about uh, that that it's actually an attempt for control. Mm-hmm. You know, we often think about suicide as an attempt of escape mm-hmm. or as you said, ending pain, just being done with all the things. Um, So in that thought, someone who maybe is is in that place where it feels like everything in their life is out of control, Mm -hmm. they think, well, that's the one thing I can control when I die or how I die. I mean, can you speak a little bit about – because really, you know, someone who's sitting here – I'm sitting here talking to you. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy and healthy today. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine thinking being in that place mm-hmm. of thinking about taking my life. So um, I'm just trying to understand because someone who is thinking about control, are they thinking about okay, I will be dead? I mean, does that enter the picture, or it's just the focus on I want to be in control? And, and the death part doesn't really come into play. A- am I making yeah. sense?
2: A lot of times, you know, that question comes up, um, you know, is the person who attempts suicide, do they really want to die? Yes. Well... Not all the time. Is death their goal? Really okay. it is to make whatever the pain is, whatever the turmoil, whatever the stress is, they want it to end. Okay. And sometimes if they have tried, and a lot of times they say, well, have they asked for help? Like, do they just come up with suicide? And that was their, like end all their first idea no a lot of times they have asked for help they have cried out in one way or the other um, but suicide kind of comes up as a resort for them and they just want it to end it's not that they necessarily want to die mm-hmm. um, and I'm not saying that's for every instance but right. sometimes it is exactly that they just want it to end and suicide ends up being um, one of those things that they consult about when it comes to wanting to end that stress and wanting to end and so The control piece of it is just that. You know, if you think of eating disorders, a lot of times you'll hear that, you know, it's a control of, well, there's so much going on in my life, but I can control how much I eat. Or I can control how I look. Or I can control my image. And by doing that, I can do it through what I eat and what I don't eat or what compensatory behaviors I engage in. And so sometimes, and I'm not saying this is equally for all suicide, but sometimes it comes down to that. I can't control anything everything is out of control my pain
0: whatever it is I'm going through this will stop it all I see so I mean it's not like this person is necessarily looking at after the fact Mm -hmm. you know they're not thinking in those terms you know like I said with someone sitting here that is happy and healthy talking about this Mm -hmm. we think about it in terms of like planning right you think about okay well you know, that may give this immediate fix, mm-hmm. but then you're going to be dead. That, that person may not be in that mindset.
2: Right. At that point, we may have other mental health factors that have come into play. Because, of course, you know, like you said, you and I could be very healthy here, um, have great protective factors, but something could happen tomorrow that changes all of that. Um, were we very depressed or anxious people before? Well, Probably not. For some people, it is the, they do suffer with depression. They already suffer with anxiety. They already have addiction issues. They've already been through chronic illnesses. Um, so you have some situations that can compound with that and when you think about control if they've lost it or they feel like they're losing it or they're pulling at straws here um and you compound that with the depression that they already have that's sometimes the the straw that broke the camel's back if you will kind of the
0: trigger yeah
2: sort of the trigger and that's why um in some ways it's harder for the person that is depressed or anxious that's going through chronic illness or addiction um or transition of life has a harder time not thinking about something like suicide versus a person who's healthy who knows how to cope who's developed coping skills who has protective factors or who's still connected with them because the person that is thinking about suicide or attempting suicide has sort of lost touch with the protective factors even if they have them you know we have people that come in here every day who have kids they have jobs you know they have um, a spiritual connection with something or someone However, they've lost touch with those things okay.
0: you know and that can happen so that was one of the things that i wanted to and, and you've already kind of touched on it is can't do we all have the capacity for suicidal thoughts or even committing suicide and and i think the question there is more about and and I think you touched on it with the fact that things can happen in your life versus it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who has chronic clinical depression mm-hmm. or someone that has battled this for years. Right. Um, although that's a, a group that struggles with suicide. Yeah, it's a higher risk. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so I guess we all have that potential is that right we all have the the risk is everywhere out there for everyone
2: you know but i think what it is is we all have a certain um resilience factor okay you know and also the coping um so your ability to cope because some of us can be hit very hard in life and you know forever be going over speed bumps and dealing with issues but we've never gone there to that point of thinking suicidal ideations or thinking attempts or anything like that and Mm -hmm. it might be our resilience factor it might be the coping um, mechanisms that we have it might be the rally of support around us um, and that looks very different. Unfortunately, in this setting um, at Ridgeview, you know, the patients we see a lot of times, all those things are not there for them, unfortunately. I they see. don't have the support, you know, they don't have the connection with protective factors. They may have had their resilience shot down a million times, and it's gotten to them to this point, point. and so what we seek to do here is, you know, provide that Opportunity for insight for them so they can reconnect to those things as Mm -hmm. well as reconnect to a purpose for living, um, reconnect to those protective factors, as well as just receive the treatment that they need for anything else that they might be going through. Because we understand that the suicide It's more of a secondary thing going on. There is something underlying there. And it may not be clinical depression or anxiety, like you said, but there's something going on there that supersedes to us the suicide. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. So with, after saying that, one, one of the things I wanted to get your opinion unfortunately suicide rates have increased Mm -hmm. in the united states and i think i heard a statistic that actually worldwide suicide is decreasing Mm -hmm. however in the united states it is increasing Mm -hmm. um can can you speak to why that might be happening what you think might be happening
2: I think it is still the lack of awareness um, and just not paying close enough attention to the importance of prevention. Um, you know, we don't want to think or look or talk about suicide until it's happened. Right. Instead of talking about it like right now as you and I are doing about it and what it is and what why it is and the risks and the prevention, you know, having the conversations with the community, with our youth starting, you know, very young and even with our older populations who, in their days and times, it might have been very taboo to even discuss or talk about, but even creating a platform for all of these populations and age groups and demographics because it's a conversation that can very much get lost until we're dealing with it. Right. So I think prevention is the key thing here that if we pay more attention to that and making people more aware and more comfortable with
0: the conversations, maybe that toll will decrease. Right. Do you, um, because, you know, there's always opinions about all different kind of things. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think about people who kind of put some of this increase on suicide onto social media or the fact that we supposedly are more connected than we ever have been through our digital age and all of our electronics. However, it seems like that that often creates more of an isolation effect for Mm -hmm. us. Um, Can you speak to that or have you seen any of that in your experience?
2: Oh, most certainly. I have to say, Probably in all populations, but in the most, of course, our adolescents, because they are the most in tune with technology and using the social media channels, Um, and they are sometimes hiding behind or crying out for help behind the social media challenges um, um, channels, and so um, I think that it is something to definitely be brought to the forefront. It is something that, um, at large, um, the networks of social media needs to pay attention to, to, be filtering needs to be looking at ways from the background because you know as adults or you know not always connected to our kids or our students social medias or our patients social medias we can't always dictate what's going on there you know so when we see something or when we hear about it you know if your daughter's friend tells you something that kind of creeped her out about her, about your daughter's social media page i don't think it's something that we should just kind of swipe over and you know not pay attention to right. because in essence they could be isolating they could be trying to communicate something and it is a way that our adolescents are communicating now they're using more text messaging to tell us what they want right. for dinner <laughs> than they are you know just coming downstairs to tell us and talk to us right um so it is something that we need to monitor we need to pay attention to and if there's anything that we can bring to the awareness, I think we need to be using those channels to make them more aware. You know, right. you know, I think there should be more broadcasting, more things like this podcasts, and ways to connect to people virtually and through technology so that we can continue because this is the way in, of the age in our society. This right. is the wave of where we're going. Right. You know,
0: do you um, though, even though obviously I think technology is here to stay, you mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Do you, thinking about parents in particular, encourage parents, though, to still try to have that face-to-face contact with their kids? Do you, I mean, do you feel that that is still hugely important? Oh,
2: most certainly. I think there is nothing like those you know, one-to-one conversations or family discussions. You know, why not host a roundtable at your own house type of thing? Um, because if you want your kids to learn about anything, you want it. You want them to learn about it from you. And if yeah. you're not the expert, then hey, rally some support or rally the professionals that can help you. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with getting your child a therapist, even if they don't have an issue. Yeah. Why can't they just have an outlet or someone to talk to? other than you or friends and you know why not let them know that they can be comfortable talking with you about some subjects it's just like you know having the birds and the bees talk that that talk shouldn't come from you know their friend from down the street it should really come from within the home first Um, And then if you need other lines or tiers of support, then you rally that in. Right. Um, But I think it's very important to continue the face-to-face and not let technology kind of take over the way we parent or the way we support each other as a community. Um, Because even this conversation with you, I'm sure, will penetrate a lot deeper, um, you know, than if you read about it somewhere.
0: Right, yeah. That The talking is still a good tool. It is definitely a great <laughs> Obviously tool. Obviously still a good tool. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the things and and kind of touching closer to home mm-hmm. here in Walton County, um, through my research, I have uncovered that unfortunately we do have an alarming rate of suicide here in our community. In 2016, uh, we had double, almost double the state average of committing suicide Um, We lost 21 people to suicide in the year 2016. And this year, and here we are recording at the end of April, and this year we've already lost four people in Walton County to suicide, two of which were teenagers. Um, You know, I have really scratched my head because I feel like that most of the community probably doesn't know mm-hmm. that this is a big issue here in our community, that we are losing too many people mm-hmm. to, to suicide here. And I have said, you know, if we in 2016, if we would have lost 21 of our community members to an illness or at the hands of a serial killer. Mm -hmm. That would have been in the headlines. People would be talking about it. You would hear about it at the restaurants. I mean, it would definitely be a topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. So can you help us understand or help me understand you know, why is this different? Why is this not being talked about, do you think? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, just because it's one of those taboo, you know,
2: sinful um, types of ways to go out, if you will, and people don't like to bring attention to that because it's such a um, it's, it's looked at as such a negative way of, um, of passing. And so um, you're right. If it was any other way, you know, or any other way of death, a lot of times it's talked about at the drop of a hat. I've right. even um, compared it upstairs when I'm doing therapies is that you know, the way you take care of your back pain, the way you take care of your diabetes needs to be the same way you take care of the neck up. Right. You know, you can't be walking around from the neck down all healthy and great, and then from the neck up, you're just sick, you're a bag of bones, you know? And so I think it's looked at the same way in the community when we, are not having these conversations with each other or when we're kind of shying away um, from looking at the, the severity of how suicide is plaguing, um, you know, even Walton County, it's just that, it's just that, it's just another topic that needs to be addressed. It's just as important as anything else, if not more, right? Um, especially in our adolescent, you know, community, because we see those are the higher risk population and as well as the Jerry than anyone else. Right.
0: So I it's funny that you said that about, you know, taking care of the neck up. I did an interview with one of our local ministers and he had he was of the same opinion. He Mm -hmm. said, you know, we think nothing of taking a pill for, uh, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, whatever it is. Um, and we we don't think anything about sharing that information with our neighbor. Mm-hmm. But if you need a pill for depression or something like that, that is a total different conversation. Mm-hmm. And even if you're comfortable about sharing it, the person you share it with may be very uncomfortable about hearing it. Right. Um, so I guess that just speaks, you know, not just to Walton County, but... That's our society in general. Yeah, it's just a cultural demographic
2: um, shift that we are still yet to make um, progress with. I think there is some progress being made. However, I think we have a long road to go when it comes to just bringing up those confidence and comfort levels with people being okay with sharing and people being okay with receiving um, those type of conversations and that type of communication when it comes to mental health, whether it's as serious as suicide or just as simple as, you know, I'm just feeling very anxious today about this, you know. And so um, I think what it is is just we really need to shift it upwards and make people feel more comfortable about that. And, you know, if we are the society that we claim to be, we just need to be a lot more open about that.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was um, another set of interviews that I did was with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So a big I, – I don't know how else to put it, but a big piece of this burden um, does end up landing on law enforcement, being first responders mm-hmm. and um, in emergency situations. And however, law enforcement, at least I know in our community – um, our law enforcement officers don't get more than 40 hours of training um, and it's not necessarily specifically suicide but it is mental health mm-hmm. issues um, and then they are the first ones there on the scene when it comes to suicide And but at the same time you know threatening to kill yourself or actually killing yourself is not against the law mm-hmm. so I think it, it's such an interesting dynamic, I guess, the way that we do things. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts about law enforcement and kind of the situation that they're in when it comes to mental health and and the fact that, you know, they're not counselors. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not licensed. Mm-hmm. In your profession, are y'all talking about this?
2: Um, so, yes, we are. And um, I actually had the pleasure of working with another program or um, therapy center in Johns Creek, Georgia, and they were actually in works of teaming up with law enforcement because they saw the very same issue. You know, law enforcement is on the double. They are there at the time of crisis. They are called upon. They have to be there. That is a part of their first responder job. Um, However, they may not be privy to, you know, the cultural effects or the mental health issues and all that goes into it and all the criteria and maybe what to look for crisis mode and safety-wise. But what about, you know, just that person that is under duress or stress? You right. Know? Right. And so um, I do see that, you know, I think it's going to be a coming together, mm-hmm. you know, that unified front, that, you know, type of team approach that it's going to take to really um, do our best effort as mental health professionals and as law enforcement to kind of come to, to come together so that we know sort of, you know, what their Role is right. as law enforcement when it comes to ensuring the safety of our society, and then our role as making sure that they get what they need when it comes to referral basis. What happens after crisis? You know, right. what can they best do? How can we best give them? Because of course, they're not going to wear the licensed hats that we do. Right. But what tools can we give them to kind of use in those moments? So I really think it's going to be you know having more conversations. You know, really making it our civic duty. Um, to have these conversations and make sure that the society is safe as we can provide them right
0: mm-hmm. do you mind telling us uh, sharing a little bit about what johns creek um, did with law enforcement there what their program looked like mm-hmm. so it was a cultural cultural diversity
2: program um, with all that kind of went on in our world um, with the whole um you know, law enforcement against the cultural diversity and all of that. So what it was was a diversity training that this therapy center um, put together Mm -hmm. and they thought it was absolutely necessary to bring law enforcement in because what they were seeing was in the schools was children not feeling comfortable children not feeling comfortable if they wanted to wear a hood or you know their favorite sweatshirt or you know can I still be friends with this person and just the shock and the shift that it was creating um just in academia. Right. And so they thought it was necessary to bring in law enforcement because we were seeing um, in that area of North Fulton County, the suicide rates going up and up and up and up. And so um, law enforcement was more than happy to come in. And they did. And they received the diversity training. So now they are more aware of sort of the children's perspectives you okay. know we think of it as right. adults you know and i'm right. not in law enforcement but i could think of it as an adult but to really get on the level of a child and their ability to process just what's going on in their world wow um, and so that was really impactful um, and it was just a great front to put up and to be involved in when it comes to trying to reduce that suicide rate
0: yeah i mm-hmm. like that and i'm wondering if we might be able to create something similar Mm -hmm. to that here in our community because it seems like you know with what we're talking about our rates um, we need to try to figure out some prevention measures to be able to do here Mm -hmm. Um, so in your opinion this might be a tough question but is suicide preventable I think that And not in all cases is it preventable,
2: but I think that prevention is a key factor. Um, What I know is that risk factors are very important when we think about suicide, whether it's the ideation or attempt. Um, There are a lot of risk factors. There are a lot of protective factors. And I think that once we start paying attention to that and we really start communicating and making um, mental health a... Comfortable conversation for people to have and to open up about, the prevention will come along with. You know, that is, in essence, prevention being able to be, you know, for people to have a voice for people to be comfortable having a voice, and then also for us to be open to listening. Right. Um, I think that's the biggest point of prevention because a lot of times suicide comes into play when people just don't think they're heard, and like I said, right. they're losing control, um, and they're really trying to access that point, and they cannot. And so I think when those channels are open and they remain open and we add more and more people and um, more and more um like you said, disciplines to that channel, right. whether it's law enforcement, ministry, mental health professionals, um, when you add more and more channels to that, you, you can, um, in essence, you know, increase the prevention. Right. And I, I don't think it will, you know, necessarily ever go away completely. Right. But I think that there is hope, and when we give people hope, that's a part of prevention as well.
0: I'm glad that you said that because it does seem like one of the reoccurring themes in all of my interviews is um, this is a community issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it isn't just in this family or that family. It actually is the responsibility of the community Mm -hmm. to come together. And the more we join forces and the more we shine light Mm -hmm. on this the more hope is created. And I, I've said, you know, bad things happen in the dark. But once you shine light a lot of times on those bad things, it reduces them or makes them go away or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so it does sound like that you are saying, you know, there are things we can do as a community. And and it does take more than just the mental health professionals, more than mm-hmm. just law enforcement, um, but the community as a whole coming together exactly to to actually put it, prevention in place. Oh, definitely, um, which is great to hear because we love to hear that. Yeah, there are things we can do mm-hmm. that you know this is not a lost cause. Exactly. Um, so, kind of in our closing. Um, oh, before we close though, I did want you to touch on talking a little bit about warning signs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we like to focus on warning signs a lot of times and sometimes I wonder if that's because, you know, when we hear about something bad happening, we want to distance ourselves from it mm-hmm. and we want to say, you know, I wonder why that person's so in shock. There should of course there had to have been warning signs. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk about that conversation of warning signs?
2: Yeah, and they um sometimes look different for different populations. So let's start off with adolescents. For adolescents, it could be um seeing that they're decreased eating you could see poor um poor grades like they're you know um, academics kind of going down downward spiral um the one that kind of reigns across every demographic is going to be isolation that person that might have been social or a little bit more social but are now not um so they're isolating a lot more they're withdrawing from normal activities um so we see that a lot. Um, sometimes it's, you know, the good old-fashioned, I'm tying up my loose ends, you know? Okay. Like if you see that mom is now telling you where she keeps all her files and, you mm-hmm. know, where her grandma's brooches and all of this, and you know, that might be a warning sign, like, what is she preparing for? Right. You know, why are you telling me this right now? Um, other warning signs might be, you know, a person who is going through um, a bout of chronic illness. Maybe they've received bad news about it. And so we want to kind of look at that as well. Um, another thing we, d- we see is... Um, if they are starting to give away things you know things that are really prized possessions you know if they're starting to sell things you know talking about getting up and skipping town you know and you know this is a person that's been very settled most of their life we want to look at those types of things as well um and then sometimes there's that good old goodbye letter Okay. You know, are they starting to write things like that? And for our kids or anyone on social media, it might be those little messages like, see you guys later, see you in the next life. Right. You know, so we want to pay attention to those messages, too, if they're pretty much out of the norm of what we might expect from them. Um, so those are just a, you know, a little bit um, of the warning signs right. that we've seen across different demographics, different populations, even, you know, if I can just think about some of the things that I've seen in our assessments here of when I've talked to patients, those are some of the things that they've told me or that their families have shared with me okay. about their experience to getting to this point of treatment.
0: And is it possible that someone could make up their mind to end their life and have no warning signs? Absolutely. Yes,
2: but what I will say is I think there was some research done, and they said that um, somewhere around 60% of people have actually had some sort of reaching out for help. Okay. So when you hear a person say, well, out of nowhere, they just hung themselves. Right. Well, at some point, probably, um, and I think they said it was in a six-month period. Okay. Um, Six months prior to the completed suicide the person had in some way reached out for help, whether they had been in therapy for a little while or they had talked with a friend or mentioned something to their husband okay. or said something to a coworker, They had made some mention that they were going through something um, before six months prior to okay. the, the completed suicide or attempted suicide. So I think people, um, you know, not all the time do they just you know, hop up with the idea of doing it. A lot of times they, they had some lick of hope, but somewhere down the line or with a triggering event, um, it just led them
0: to that. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the other things it sounds like you're saying there is we need to be in tune with our loved ones. Mm -hmm. We, we need to be looking them in the face every mm-hmm. once in a while, mm-hmm. we need to be talking and we need to be present right. with that person. And especially if, they're, if they are going through a hard time, mm-hmm. um, so we need to even be a little bit more in tune with that person, right. is what I'm hearing you say. Because you've
2: got different folks. You know, you've got people that will tell you about every each and every issue and problem they're going through like right. they've got to just get it off of their <laughs> chest and you know get it off their backs and hearts and then you've got other people that carry it around like a bag of rocks you right. know and it's important to give that attention to both of those people right you know because i mean more importantly to the person who's carrying the bag of rocks because that's that quiet person who's bottling everything right. but also the person who's sharing a lot they need to have their voice heard as well. And so, you know, I think that's what's really important here is that, you know, the ability to listen and be heard is what gives us hope. Right. You know, and sometimes it is that one protective factor that can um, be a prevention measure to the suicide or the ideation.
0: Well, if do you have any words that if someone was listening right now Mm -hmm. who may be having thoughts of of ending their life or um, someone who is worried about Mm -hmm. someone in their life that may be um, dealing with suicidal thoughts or something do you have any words to share with those two people
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and well to the one who is
2: thinking about um, suicide for themselves i would just say you know hold on five more minutes, one more hour, one more day. What can you um, think about in that five minutes, that hour, that day that makes you want to live Mm -hmm. again? And let them know that this this feeling that they're having doesn't have to be always. It can change and there is hope. And there is help out there. No matter what dead ends they may have thought they have reached, there is hope and there is healing for them. And for the person who may have recognized those feelings for someone else, um, I would say give them an opportunity to be heard. Get them help. Get them help fast and now. Um, Don't wait for it. Um, And that there are all kinds of treatment recommendations and referrals out there. This doesn't have to be a scary thing. This doesn't have to be everybody's business, but it needs to be their business to get that person help
0: okay Mm -hmm. can you share with us how to get in contact with ridgeview sure
2: so we are located at 709 breed love drive in monroe um we are at the old hospital location as a lot of people in walton county may recognize us as um our main line number is 678-635-3500 Um, We are open 24-7 for assessments and referrals. So even if you come in or call in and we are not the appropriate placement for you, we will not leave you off that phone until we have found the appropriate placement for you. So that's That's another great. great thing about calling in. It's not that you'll necessarily be here because some people... Guess what? If you live in Monroe, maybe you don't feel comfortable being at our facility, you know, so we will make sure that we find the appropriate placement for you. Um, But just know that, you know, that's one of the things that we like to provide every patient is just an opportunity for help, an opportunity for treatment, no matter what that
0: is. That's that's mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this with us today. I really feel like you have shared some really good insight. Great. Um, into what our conversation has been so far. And sounds like Ridgeview does have a lot of services to offer our community and mm-hmm. communities around ours as well. Absolutely. So um, thank you for what you do.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for bringing this conversation and this topic to awareness. I hope that everyone that is listening takes something away from this and, and does something to better our society when it comes to this. Great. Thank you.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Walton Wellness, Inc. and the Walton County Healthcare Foundation. Email us at waltonwellness at gmail.com. Find us on the web at waltonwellness.org, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank <laughs> you.